commence this hour with Dr. Eugenia Clark on Fisk University's pivotal role in the civil rights movement and its unwavering fight for equity. Dr. Clark, good to have you on this program. How are you today? I'm doing great, and thank you so much for the invitation. It's good to have you on. Uh, it feels like I was just laughing. Uh, it feels like a, a Black History Month hour. We ain't got to February yet, but around here we cel- <laughs> we, we, cel- we celebrate Black History every day. So whether we're talking uh, today or in February, we celebrate Black History every day. We rooting for everybody Black, and so I I, I never know how these uh, these hours come together. My producers uh, you know put shows together and things fall into place, and it's just fascinating that in this hour we're talking about uh, uh, two. Two institutions, uh, two history-making groups of people, uh, Fisk uh, right now, and uh, again, the Triple Nichols, uh, this black pioneering uh, group of paratroopers. We'll get to that on the back side of this hour. But let me just let me just jump right in. There's been a lot. There's been a lot of news of late, and over the last few years, uh, a, 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 you know, a number of articles here and there about Fisk. It's a grand institution. Uh, you got to love. I love, love, love that statue of Du Bois. Uh, that stands on the, on the grounds at on the grounds at Fisk. I've been to Fisk many many times, and I, I, I consider it one of the great uh, honors of my career, my life, to have been uh, the recipient, to be the recipient of an honorary doctorate from Fisk, and having mm-hmm. been commencement speaker, commencement mm-hmm. speaker there some years ago. So again, a great honor for me to be uh, celebrated by Fisk in that way. Um, but it's it's fascinating to have a conversation about the pivotal role they played, of course, in the movement. But I want to start with a big question, a broad question about the condition, the state of Fisk in real time. Tell me that first, and then we'll jump from there. Okay, fabulous. Um, so that is that that is the question that um, is truly what is resonating with the board and the leadership of our institution. Because uh, you may be aware that yesterday is was Founders Day at Fisk. Mm-hmm. Um, more than 150 years ago, um, yesterday, students were enrolled at this institution. And you, you probably recall, um, Fisk University started as the Freed Colored People School. Mm-hmm. Because this is right after the Civil War, and we, as newly freed people, didn't have access to... Uh, institutions of higher learning. So this one was established here in Nashville. And by the way, it is the oldest institution of higher learning in Nashville. And it was established for that purpose. But more more back to your question specifically. Um, I have been sharing with everyone and anyone who wants to hear today's story on FISC. My message has been this. This university continues to be wealthy in the caliber of students that we serve on our campus. We continue to be wealthy in the academic scholarship that is coming out of our campus. And we continue to be wealthy in staff and leadership and board direction at this university. But what we don't have is what you've been talking about for years uh, going all the way back to the covenant with Black America, we do not have economic wealth. The, the level of investment financially into the sustainability of this institution uh, is not on par with its 150 years of existence. Mm-hmm. As a result of that, where Fisk is today, we are still standing, despite the fact that the majority of our buildings are historic in nature, despite the fact that we uh, have not had the economic support that will allow us to invest in the infrastructure 
and the facilities to assure that we're going to be in existence for another 150 years. Mm -hmm. So I've kind of just been in the role now for about 90 days, and that is the opportunity that gets me the most excited, um, is the, the honor and the privilege of saying, oh, we are still here despite the fact that there hasn't been an on-par level of economic investment in FISC. And, but the reason we're still here, mm, I'm sorry. No, and if, if, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, finish it. The reason we're still here, finish your thought, I'm sorry. The, the reason we're still here is that despite that, yeah. we refuse to go away. Mm-hmm. And so now my focus is and attention is, how do I create the level of sustainability yes. that has resulted in us being here for more than 150 years? And when we come forward, I want to come straight to that point. Uh, because Fisk is not the only person, the only school that is, rather, in this situation. You're not the only person as president of one of these institutions. Um, you're not the only person uh, grappling and wrestling with these realities. And there are all kinds of conversations about what we do, about these grand institutions like Fisk that are, you know, uh, trying to navigate their ways through some difficult economic times. Other HBCU presidents are dealing with the same thing. There are all kinds of ideas. Some suggested schools ought to consolidate, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, uh, but my question when we come forward right quick is why that support has not been on par, that economic investment, that support has not been on par with the grand legacy of a place like Fisk. We're talking with the president of Fisk University, Dr. Eugenia Clark, on Tavis Smiling. Hope, agency, dignity. This is Tavis Smiley. Helping to make you the most knowledgeable person in your circle of friends. This is Tavis Smiley. This is Tavis Smiley in dialogue with the president of Fisk University, Dr. Eugenia Clark, who I'm honored to have on this program talking about uh, the pivotal role this school has played in civil rights history and its unwavering fight for equity, uh, even as many of these HBCUs struggle to um, to get on the good foot, as the godfather of soul, James Brown, might say. Um, <laughs> we, we were playing Stevie earlier, and now I got a James Brown reference, so I just love black music. What can I, what, what can I tell you? My, my question, though, I'm just watching my time here. I want to manage it better. Um, tell, tell me more about why you believe, and this is a conversation about Fisk, but as you know, as I opined earlier, it's a much broader conversation about HBCUs because there are many that are, you know, again, struggling with these uh, economic realities. Um, why uh, do you think that uh, the the support uh, has not been commensurate commensurate with the legacy with uh, of this institution? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and and I would say for each HBCU, we each probably have a different journey that has brought us to this place and. What I'm focused on right now is the journey that has gotten Fisk to this place and what the journey is going to look like ahead. But there's some things that are happening now that I believe um, give better supportive data and foundational information so that donors and funders are looking at HBCUs differently. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, uh, if you haven't seen it, I think one day this week, Brown University uh, did a report from the Annenberg Institute Institute for uh, School Reform, and in it, it talks about the importance of black students enrolling at HBCUs and how they are graduating at higher rates, Mm -hmm. their higher rate of satisfaction for their higher ed experience. But more importantly than than that, 
everyone is interested in what is the economic impact to those students as individuals and to the communities that they become a part of. This study takes it a step further, and it just basically says that the students who graduate from an HBCU, uh, they have higher household incomes um, Mm -hmm. when compared to students graduating from um, PWIs or, or predominantly white institutions. All of that to say that we're at a place now where HBCUs are finally gathering and data and information about the impact of our students and our communities, their impact on their professional and personal lives is greater greater for them and our country because they're matriculating at a higher rate and they're outperforming a lot of their peers within our community. I think what has happened as a direct response to your question mm-hmm. is that we have got to do a better job of sharing the importance of these investments because everyone is interested in how these investments become a better investment in our communities. And that's what we've got to do a stronger job of. Mm -hmm. Um, I was reading something not too long ago, Dr. Clark, and it, it made the case, I think pretty, pretty persuasively that one of the best reasons for attending HBCUs even today is particularly in this era of DNI, but let me be more exact, in an era where they're now retrenching. <laughs> we see retrenchment on DEI, right? Everybody made these commitments after the murder of George mm-hmm. Floyd to do better. Ain't nobody really honored it. Now they're all in retrenchment mode. <laughs> on this program yesterday, I had a black woman who was one of the major uh, diversity officers here in Hollywood, in L.A., where I sit. This station, this show, I should say, is heard across the country in, in syndication, but I'm based here in L.A., and she came in the studio yesterday. Her uh, name was Janelle English, and there was a big story a few months ago uh, about all these black women who were running DE&I in, in major Hollywood studios, major Hollywood spaces. And they all sort of left around the same time. It, it became a national story that six black women were just mm-hmm. walking out of Hollywood uh, fed up with, with, with all the, the DE&I drama. I, I raise that in part because we're in a moment now where we see retrenchment in that, in, in that, in that regard. Uh, but the data suggests that when companies are looking to hire black people, to get those numbers up, rather than going to a place like I matriculated from Indiana University and trying to find Tabis and a few other Negroes with a magnifying glass amongst all these amongst this sea of whiteness, if you go to Fisk or Morehouse or Howard or FAMU or TSU or wherever, you got a whole bunch of black folk to choose from. So that the data seems to suggest that you have a better chance of being hired, in fact, if you go to an HBCU because they come directly to you looking for black folk. Uh, I don't know if you've seen data that suggests that as well, but it seems to me that's a strong argument even now, a strong economic argument, in fact, for getting black folk to consider HBCUs even in real time. Absolutely. And I will say in my brief 90 days in this role, uh, I'm amazed at the number of requests I get from uh, businesses wanting to recruit our students. Mm -hmm. Now, the primary reason they should be recruiting our students is because they're the best and the brightest. Mm -hmm. And that has not been lost on them. So recruitment efforts are up. We're very excited that we even have a center, a new facility. As a matter of fact, the newest facility on our campus uh, is a Roland Parish uh, Career Center Mm -hmm. because that demand, as you described, is going up. And we want to make sure that we're in a position to uh, 
inform our students of all internship opportunities, employment opportunities, career advancement opportunities, and that you, you've absolutely have nailed it. But I don't sense right now at FISC that businesses are have have even pulled back on their request to be in front of our students. It continues to grow. And I would say that there's no better place to do that right now than, um, than at Fisk University. So thank you for bringing that up because that is an area, again, that goes back to the many areas that we're wealthy in. Yeah. And that is putting opportunities in front of our students. Yeah. Let me let me ask a personal question. Uh, and again, I could ask this of any number of uh, HBCU presidents mm-hmm. who are grappling and wrestling with the same challenges that you're wrestling with at Fisk. Uh, in a moment like this, where these challenges are 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 so um, uh, um, so acute, uh, why would one want to step into a situation? I, I asked. I literally had a guest <laughs> on our program earlier, Harry Dunn. Uh, you, the, the name Harry Dunn jumps out. We all recall Harry Dunn as the black, the black Capitol police officer who we saw yeah, uh, going yeah. to duty on January the 6th. Mm-hmm. And we saw him testify mm-hmm. in front of Benny Thompson's committee, the January 6th select committee. So this brother was mm-hmm. the brother cop that we all know and saw uh, and came to respect uh, after what happened January 6th, three years ago. And this Negro is now running for Congress. I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> like, what? Like, you it. saw you saw all the drama that went down that day, and yes. you, you're still protected. You, you spent three more years after that day protecting these, these Republicans who you saw lying on TV every night about what really happened that day, and now you want to be a part of that body? So we had a great conversation. You gave a great answer to it, and I support him in his campaign. But it raises the same question for you, a different great. scenario, why you'd want to step into this breach, as it were, at, at a moment like this. And I, I'm going to just have to say, I think that there's some of us who truly love who we are, where we're from, what we represent, the skills and knowledge that we've gained along the way, and we think we're going to step in and make it better for those of us who are coming along behind us. It's passion. Mm-hmm. You do it because of your passionate belief. And and Tavis, I will say this to you. If you walked, just walked around that campus for 30 minutes, mm-hmm. I'm going to say for 10 minutes, and you, you see these students, you see their interactions with each other, you see their interactions with faculty and staff, you will be committed to the fact that there is no greater purpose. Mm-hmm. There is no greater purpose. So this doesn't feel like a daunting experience or a daunting exercise for me, Mm. it feels like a unique privilege and opportunity because there is nothing more exciting than seeing these students thrive Mm. at this university. And I'm just going to share a a, a side note here about thriving. So last night, um, there was an event here in town and the Fifth Jubilee Singers performed. Oh, yes. And, And you can only imagine, I like how the host said, um, touch our souls with your voices. Mm-hmm. And it dawned upon me that this Jubilee Singers, Grammy winning, they are students who are enrolled at Fisk who then have the privilege of auditioning to be a Fisk Jubilee Singer. And this happens every year. So they don't come to Fisk as Jubilee Singers. They come for the privilege of having the opportunity to audition mm-hmm. and hope they make the group. But one of those singers 
uh, is a young student, an international student, who's in their freshman year at Fisk, had never heard of the Jubilee Singers, but heard the gentleman uh, in his dorm talking about they were getting ready to go audition. He decided to go audition, and as a freshman, he makes the Fisk Jubilee Singers. <laughs> this university is about opportunity. Opportunity that is not going to be necessarily handed to our children when they come to an institution and maybe not have any musical background or training, but they know they have a voice and they know they know what pitch is Mm -hmm. because they have a good ear. Where else can you go and have the fortunate privilege? Because the other part of that privilege and opportunity is that audition isn't only open to a certain group of students is open to every student. Mm-hmm. You come to this because you are one of every student who will be given an opportunity to pursue an interest, a passion, or a dream. I am there only as a figurehead to make sure these students have those same privileges and opportunities 150 years from today. Because mm-hmm. it's special. You know, it's absolutely special. I, I've heard the Fisk Jubilee Singers more times than I can count, and every time I hear them, they never oh, they never disappoint. As a matter of fact, um, I think some in the audience know this. Uh, I've done a number of documentaries, of course, in my career, and one of them is a documentary called Stand. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one I'm probably the most proud of is uh-huh. called Stand. It was a documentary that featured uh, me and a bunch of my black male friends uh, on a bus tour of the South for two or three weeks. And we went to all of these amazing locations as black men. And I mean, some pretty amazing guys. I mean, you know, Cornell West, Dick Gregory, uh, mm-hmm. the, the, then uh, the, he's now gone, but Isaac Hayes. Um, it was just an amazing mm-hmm. uh, Michael Eric Dyson, B.B. Winans, speaking of singers, um, uh, just a lot of folk on this on this bus trip with us as we moved through the South. Uh, and we filmed all this for a documentary called Stand. You can probably find it somewhere on Amazon or somewhere. It's it's mm-hmm. out there. But anyway, I raised that because one of our stops um, was at Fisk. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. And um, the group didn't know this, but I, I sort of knew this as the guy who you know curated the trip. Uh, I, I knew that I was uh, plotting out certain uh, stops on the, on the southern trip uh, based on the folk who were on the bus with me and moments that uh, I knew I could create. Uh, for these individuals, uh, once we um, once we arrive, I knew that it would impact them in certain ways. So I planned uh, a stop for everybody, <laughs> basically, on this trip. So I went to Fisk because it turns out that Cornell West, uh, the brilliant Dr. Cornell West, who's now running for president as an mm-hmm. independent, Cornell West parents mm-hmm. met on the campus of Fisk. At, mm-hmm. that, I don't know if you know that or not, but that's where his parents met. And yes. there, there'd be no yes. Cornell West if there were no Fisk. Not for Fisk. <laughs> yeah, not for Fisk. Uh-huh. That's where his uh-huh. mom and daddy met, and that's how that's how we ended up with Cornell West years <laughs> later. I, I I digress on that point, but it was quite a moment uh, when Doctor West uh, when we pulled when we pulled up and he saw the Fisk sign and all the tears just started rolling um, to be back on this campus where his mm-hmm. mother and father had met all those years prior. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of history on this campus. I'm watching my time. I got just less than three minutes here. We had a guest again earlier on this program today talking about uh, the Biden administration. Uh, and the campaign, of mm-hmm, course, they're waging mm-hmm. to get reelected. And one of the points that he makes everywhere he goes, the president does, is what he's done for HBCUs. And I, I know you're just relatively mm-hmm. new to the job, uh, but when President Biden brags about what he's done for HBCUs, is that something we should take seriously? Is he is he telling us the truth? Um, so I'm going to say two things quickly because you said three minutes. Yeah, Number now, one. Now you got two, but go ahead. Do, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now it's time to do stand again. Mm-hmm. 
is also time to revisit the covenant again. The reason I say that is that the beauty of what you have just shared is lost on many in this new generation and this new set of decision makers. Mm-hmm. It's never too late to redo these stories again, because those were impactful and powerful moments via a book and a documentary mm-hmm. for our people. That's a, as Thank far you. as President Biden, yeah, as far as President Biden, everything that I read from about President Biden and Vice President Harris, they have indeed stepped up and been phenomenal supporters of HBCU in ways and manners that count the most. Mm -hmm. And that is to help us with our bottom line by the forgiveness of a large and significant, I think with $1.6 billion Mm -hmm. in HBCU loans to free up those bottom lines. And everybody needs to know this. The most impactful way to help our HBCUs is to give them operating dollars. And when they freed up those loans, those schools were able to move forward unencumbered by the necessity of of being. So I absolutely think that they have put their money where their mouth is and they've helped the HBCUs in that manner. Uh, Absolutely. Her name is Dr. Eugenia Clark. She is the president of Fisk University. And um, I can tell you this, Dr. Clark, I haven't even even said this publicly yet. We haven't made the announcement yet, but since you, you, you tempted me, I'll just, I'll make it, public public right about now so it turns out i don't know when i don't know when i'll do a a stand part two on the documentary but i can tell you this since you mentioned the covenant with black america that book that went to number one on the new york times bestseller list the first black book by a black publisher to be Mm -hmm. number one on the times list stayed there for years i was Mm -hmm. for weeks rather i was pleased to compile and edit it this is the 20th anniversary this year of the covenant and i can tell you Mm -hmm. right now that we are literally working on the final pages right now for the 20th anniversary edition the 20th anniversary oh of the covenant will be out later this year. So you hear it first on Tavish Smiley. More about that a little bit later, but uh, we'll get you a, a 20th anniversary copy later this year. Thank you for that. Thank Please. you for your service. I'll talk to you somewhere down the road. Dr. Clark, all the best to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. More of Tavish Smiley when we come forward.